We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. It was kind of that, that gift that, you know, you get your kids and, and you're really excited about it. And then, you know, a few months down the road, they finally pick it up, you know. Um, so that was us this year. Um, we got a couple of those Ancestry.com uh, kits, and, and what we wanted to do was find out more about where we come from. And that's the thing about genealogies, is genealogies tell the story of who you are. They tell us the story of where you've come from. They tell us the story as, as where it is now and where it's going. And so the reason that so many people love Ancestry.com is because genealogies tell an important story. They, tell, uh, they show us who we are in light of that important story. And it's no different with the genealogies that we come to in the Bible. See, whenever we come to these kinds of passages in Scripture, our, our temptation is just to kind of fly through it or, or skip past it in our Bible reading plan or, or you know, we just want to get to the good stuff. We want to see Jesus healing people and delivering people from demons and raising people from the dead. And, and the genealogies that we find in the Old and New Testaments, they aren't that exciting for us. And, and I think there's a, a couple of reasons that we we think this way about genealogies. We, you know, we, we tend to think that they can be a little bit boring and repetitive. And, and we also, probably the more important reason that we don't find them so exciting is that we don't really think they have anything to do with us. We don't really think they matter for us. And the reason we don't think that they matter for us is because we don't believe that they're our story. And so what I want us to see this morning is that when we come to passages like Genesis chapter 5 and Luke chapter 3 in the New Testament, we're not just reading someone else's story. We're reading our story. We're reading the story of those who trust in Jesus Christ, of those who have hoped in the promised offspring of God from Genesis chapter 3, the one that he promised would come to redeem us and to restore all things. This is the story that we're reading today. This is the story that shapes us. This is the story that transforms us. And so would you turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 5 today, where, we're, where this week we're going to read a very different family story than the one we read last week with Cain and his descendants. If you remember last week, we talked about the story of Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, and, and, and their family history was filled with violence and rebellion against God and, and taking what they wanted. And the story we're going to read today is the storyline of Seth's family, of Adam's other son, of the son that was appointed to be in the place of Abel, who was killed the son who will carry on God's promises and the son in whom uh, many hoped because he points not just to himself but to the greater son, the greater offspring, Jesus Christ, who would come. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. There's, there's six things I want us to look at briefly today as we look at this family's story and find our story within it. 
First thing is that uh, we're reading the history of humanity. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 5. Here's what we read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And so when, whenever Moses is opening up this, this story of Seth and his family, he tells us something at the beginning about Adam. He says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And so it's important that we pause and, and look at this first verse because what we see here is the, the Bible is this incredibly reliable account of human history. It's, it's the story of humanity. That word Adam is, isn't just a, a name for one person, but the word Adam was, was actually uh, the same word for humanity, the same word for mankind. And so this book that we are reading today is the written account of the story of humanity, of where our story begins. In other translations of, of this same verse, here's what we read. In the NIV, it says this. This is the written account of Adam's family line. And then in the, in the Christian Standard Bible, we read this. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. And so Moses is writing here like a good historian. He's, he's using written sources, sources that have been likely passed down to him as he writes his account of what God has done for us. And so this isn't typically how, how we think about what the authors of Scripture are doing, is it? So you and I, we tend to think about the idea of the inspiration of Scripture as though it's just Moses and these other authors like Paul and, and Luke. They just kind of sat down and then God just kind of dictated to them every word that they were going to write. In reality, that's not how inspiration worked. See, in inspiration, when we look at the scriptures, what we have is, is human authors writing their own words as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, as they're carried along by the Spirit, as, we, as we're going to read here in just a moment. See, we, we see this same kind of idea of using reliable sources that, that have been collected to write a, a, a reliable account for us, for those who would hear God's words in Luke chapter 1. As Luke begins to write his gospel, here's what he says. As he's writing about Jesus' life and ministry for a, a high-ranking Roman official, here's what he says. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so, so Luke and Moses are, are both these incredible men of God who trusted in the Lord, and as they write the scriptures for us as they write the accounts that we read of what God has done in human history. They write as those who have sought these things out, as those who have found sources that were reliable and credible, as they have talked to eyewitnesses and people who were closer to the events than even they were. As they compile what we read in scripture, we're reading a reliable account of what God has done in human history. We are writing a story that is more than a story. It's history. 
And it may not, it may not be uh, the, the same type of book that, that your history professor would write at your university today because, because history and, and the way it's written is, is, is different amongst different cultures. And so in the cultures and times of the Bible, they would, they, would, they would select certain parts of the story that they would want to highlight for you for a theological reason. And so whenever we read Adam's story and whenever we read Jesus' story, when we go to Luke and we read Jesus' genealogy, where Jesus came from, it doesn't list out every single person in Jesus' bloodline. It lists out in a very organized, poetic way particular parts in the story where God worked in a significant way. And it's the same thing with what Moses is doing for us here, is as he transitions from talking about the fall and Cain and Abel and everything that happened in Genesis 3 and 4 after Genesis 1 and 2 when God made all things, he's transitioning us into the time of the flood. And he's showing us the things that God has been up to as we approach that part of history. And so we're reading this reliable account written by Moses as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it. It's it's similar to what Peter says about uh, inspiration in 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, talking about the Old Testament prophecies, looking forward to Jesus, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, and listen to this part, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how the scriptures were written for us. This is how we get the account we read in Genesis and the account we read in Luke This is how we get the story of humanity, of our history, is that human beings spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as they were inspired by God to write down these words. And and, and the story that they are telling, if you caught it in 2 Peter, is the story of the beloved son. See, this story begins in Genesis. See, if we jump over to Luke chapter 3, when we read Jesus' family line, it starts here with what we're reading today. See, we're reading the story of the promised offspring. We're reading the story of Jesus Christ and the, the God-man who has come to redeem humanity from sin. And so what I want you to know about, about this first verse and, and this genealogy is that it should give you reason to trust the Bible. That, that Moses would write in such a way that he's not just writing his thoughts for you, 
but he's writing what has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's writing based on, on eyewitness testimonies and documents that he had access to that were historical documents that told these stories. Moses is compiling a reliable account for us that we can trust and that's rock solid. I don't know if you knew this, but whenever we, whenever we compare ancient documents that we study, you know, if you think about the ancient documents you study maybe in college, the, the Iliad or the Odyssey or, or other ancient manuscripts that we have, the Bible is so much more reliable than all of them. What we see when we compare the number of manuscripts that we have often is that the, Bible, the biblical manuscripts we have outnumber them by sometimes hundreds and thousands, which means that what we read in Scripture is more reliable and consistently transmitted and handed down to us than most other ancient texts. And, and what we find is that most of the biblical manuscripts we have were actually closer to the time of the events or the time of the original writing than a lot of the manuscripts we have of other documents. And so when we read verses like this in Scripture, it should give us reason to hope in it. It should give us reason to rely on it, to know that God has preserved his word in an incredible way throughout human history because he's telling our story. And ultimately, it's his story. And so we come to, to verses 1 through 3, and, and we see that we read about this idea of God's image and likeness again. So we, we think back to Genesis 1 and, 1 and 2 and how we studied the image of God there. And here in chapter 5, we read it again. Moses reminds us of it. He says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man or humanity or mankind when they were created. Then we read, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so we read here, Moses reminds us of this idea of the image of God, that humanity was made in God's likeness as his image bearers, and that, and that what we read here is that God names his image bearers. He names his sons. He names those who would reflect who he is. And if you think back to our study of the image of God, what we found out was that to be made in God's image and likeness was to be made to reflect who God is through a representative rule and reign. That we were to reflect who he is as his sons, as his representatives on the earth. That we would show something of who our father is. And we talked about how, how children, when we think about kids, they, they often look like their parents. And, and they're supposed to, you know, ideally, represent something of who their parents are through their own actions. And you know, maybe, maybe you're, you're hoping it's, it's the better parts of you. <laughs> that they represent, but they represent you. They reflect you. This, this is why sometimes my, my grandmother accidentally calls me Kent, my dad's name. It's because we look like our parents. We act like our parents. We were made to represent them in a, in a way. This is what it, it means to be made in the image and likeness of someone, is to be a son and a son that represents who they are. And so Moses reminds us that humanity was made to be in the likeness and image of God. And then when we read about Adam having this son named Seth, we read that Seth was in his own likeness, after his image, after his father's image, after Adam's. 
And there's two things that we need to understand about this when we read that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. There's two things that we need to see. The first is that Adam passes on the image of God to his son. And the second is that Adam also passed on sin, which twists and taints that image. And it's the same for you and I. You see, we often inherit both, we inherit both the good and the bad from our parents. Right? So maybe you, know, maybe you inherit both the generous spirit of a parent of yours and their temptation towards abusing alcohol. Or maybe you inherited ownership of a business from a parent, but also with it, the financial struggles that they'd had. And see, so we inherit both the good and bad from our parents. They transfer it onto us, and it's the same thing with Adam and everyone who comes after him. They all inherit the image of God, this good, glorious thing that we were made to represent God and be like God, and, and they also inherit Adam's sin, which twists and taints that image, which twists their ability to reflect God rightly and to represent him rightly, and to live for his glory. See, from from Adam we inherit both the image of God and sin which taints it. This is what we read in Romans chapter 5. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. Listen to this part. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, what we just read in Paul's letter to the Romans is that Adam has passed on this fallen condition to us. He's passed sin onto us so that we're born in sin, and because we're born in sin, we continue to sin against God. But just as one man passed on this fallen state to us, through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is our hope, Christians, is that God sent his son so that he would be God's image and likeness perfectly on our behalf. That he would stand in our place. That by his obedience, we would be counted righteous before God as we place our faith and our trust in him. See, so the the storyline matters. Because if you're trusting in Christ, then you're just as much a part of Jesus' story as you are Adam's. If you're of the line of the offspring of the woman, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then what Paul just said in Romans is true for you. This genealogy is the beginning of that son's story and our story. We we talked about a couple weeks ago, Genesis 3.15, which says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be this conflict that's harsh and lasts and it's brutal. And then we read this. He, talking about the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What we read there is this, this crushing blow that this promised offspring of Eve would deal to the serpent. 
that he wouldn't win, that though he struck back at her offspring, her son, the son would deal a crushing blow to the enemy, that there would be redemption and hope through the son. And so we talked about how Eve last week was just hoping and praying for the son, and as she had her, her first son, she, she thought, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She thought, I've finally, you know, with God's help, brought about this redemption that he promised. And then she found out that that son was not the promised offspring. When he murdered his brother, when he dishonored God. And so at the end of our passage last week, Eve was in this place where she had this humble faith, knowing that there was nothing she could do to bring about God's promised redemption, but that God had promised it, and that he had appointed another one to stand in that place. And that's the story we're reading today is as Eve looks forward to this promised offspring, Seth is the one through whom that offspring will come. The beginning of Jesus' story is right here in Genesis chapter 5 with this genealogy. This is why this is important. See, Jesus was to be the perfect image of God who represented God perfectly because he was both God and he took on flesh to stand in our place as a man. See, we read this about Jesus in the New Testament. Colossians 1 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then in Hebrews, we read that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, what the New Testament is telling us is that in Jesus, we see God perfectly. That Jesus is God himself come in the flesh to reveal God to us and to reconcile us to himself. That Jesus is the promised offspring. That Jesus is the one who was promised that would crush the head of the serpent. So as we read Genesis 5, we're reading this story at its very beginning. And we come to verses 4 through 32, and we see some, some, some repetitive things that, that are honestly the things that probably make you kind of skip through this passage. But there's some really important things that I want you to see here in these verses, so I hope you'll bear with me as we look at them. I'm going to read a few of them just so you can, you can feel kind of the monotonous cycle that happens here. So don't check out on me. Stay with me, okay? We're going to read just, just a few of them. I won't read all of them. I know you'll check out. It's okay. All right. But start with me in verse, verse 4. I want you to see some of the patterns here. See if you can notice them as we go. So Adam names his son Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalah. 
Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Are you getting the picture? There's this, there's this repetitive way that Moses is telling this story. There's certain things that he's drawing out for us that we've got to see here. And the first thing that we need to see as Moses tells this story is, is God's blessing. Is that God is still blessing his people as he fulfills his commands and purposes. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you remember that the first time that God blessed humanity, here's what he said. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so when we read about God's blessing on humanity for the first time, his first blessing on them is that they would multiply, that they would be having children and spreading throughout the earth representing who God is and his redemptive rule and reign. And that they would be representing him as they multiply. And what we also read in the Bible is that the, consequences, the consequence of sin is death. Is this stopping of life, not the continuing of it. So in Genesis 3, the man and his wife, they rebel against God, they sin against him, and the only thing that they can rightly expect is death. And yet what we read in Genesis 5 here is that God continues to bless his people with life. He continues to bless them with children. They continue to be fruitful and multiply. See, see, we didn't read this in chapter 4 with the genealogy of Cain. He, he had kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, but we just read about each descendant. We don't read this phrase, and he had other sons and daughters, implying that there were lots of them. See, we don't see God's blessing on Cain's line in the same way that we see it in Seth's line. There's a contrast being made between Cain's story and his family's story and the story of Seth's family that we're reading today. The many sons and daughters described in the line of Seth are, are an evidence of God's blessing. The Bible talks about many children and descendants in terms of blessings all over the place. We read with Abraham that he was blessed to have descendants as numerous as the stars. And then we read elsewhere that, you know, for, for an archer to have many arrows in his quiver, this was what it was like to have many children. It was a blessing. And so this is evidence of God's blessing on this family. And then we also read this phrase, all the days of so-and-so were X amount of years. And it was a lot of years. Seth and his, his descendants, they live a long time. They're blessed with long lives. Though all they deserve and all they can expect is the consequences of sin, God blesses them out of his grace. In Deuteronomy, long life is promised to children who obey God by obeying their parents. In the Psalms, God promises salvation and life to those who trust in him. In Proverbs, a long life is tied together with listening to God's words and heeding his wisdom. See, many children and long life were tied to a relationship with God in Scripture. They were blessings of God. And that's what we see in Genesis 5. And we read in, verse, uh, in chapter 5, verse 27, about this guy named Methuselah. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. 
That's the longest lifespan in Scripture, 969 years. So why such long lives? Why such long lives before the flood? Because I don't know about you, I don't know anyone who's lived past 100. Maybe 105 tops. And, and you know, some of you are thinking, well, I, I heard about a guy that's 120, you know. Okay, nowhere near 969. So what's the deal here? What changed? Well, some think that there were important environmental changes after the flood happened, which we'll read about here in just a couple of weeks. Some think that the, the climate and the weather changed and that affected lifespans. And some think that the effects of the fall just grew over time, causing humanity to have declining lifespans. So as they experienced the effects of sin in their lives more and more over time, their lifespans got shorter. I think there's certainly some validity to that. I think what we're seeing here is that God is choosing to bless his people. It's, it's that God is choosing to bless this family with long life and many children. It's not because they deserved it. It's not because they were, you know, the, anything in them was super special. It's because they had a relationship with God and he chose to bless his people out of love and grace. Until, and, until God dealt with the flood later, I think he was choosing to bless his people with long lives and many children. See, see God is, is still graciously and actively blessing humanity, despite our rebellion against him. It's often com- called common grace, right? That we enjoy blessings in life despite our rebellion against God. And God still gives grace, even though we don't deserve it. But, but just because it's sometimes called common grace doesn't mean that it's not extravagant and wonderful. That God would, would bless with many children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, or with a long life is a huge blessing of God. But what about those who, who don't live a long life or who don't have lots of kids? Is that evidence that God's blessing is absent for them? See, see, I don't think that's the case either. Though, though having many children and a long life is, is certainly evidence of God's blessing, I don't think the lack of it is necessarily evidence of his judgment on an individual. See, see long lives are, are a gift but not a deserved norm. We just talked about this, right? The only thing that we can expect as sinners in rebellion against God is death. And so any time that God blesses with long life, it's, it's simply a gift. And, and with children, the same thing. It, children are a tremendous blessing, a tremendous gift. But it's not that we deserve them. It's that they're gifts from God. And so when there's a long life for many children, we see God's blessing. But, but there's those who don't experience these things, and they, they have a relationship with God, and they still experience God's blessing in other ways. These aren't the only two ways that God blesses. See, see God blesses some people in, in different ways. Some people who have shorter lives have incredible impacts on the world for God's kingdom and his glory. They build incredible friendships and, and they mentor people in the faith and, and, and they have many, many more spiritual children than any of us do physical. You see, for, for those who don't get to experience these two blessings, it doesn't mean that there aren't blessings from God to be experienced. 
See, for those who don't experience these things, by trusting in God, there's still eternal life. Death is not the end. And there's a bigger family than you could ever imagine that you're united to by faith in Christ. And so God still blesses his people, but here in Genesis 5, we're seeing him bless them in two particular ways. But then did you notice the other part of it? So there's these long lives, that's all the days of Adam, there were 930 years, and then we read this phrase, and he died. And we read this in verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, and 31. So all throughout this whole passage, Moses is telling this repetitive, monotonous story of this family, and it's, they're born, they lived, and they died. That, and he died phrase, repeats itself over and over again. And like we talked about earlier, what we know from Scripture is that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we see this, and he died thing, we're seeing the results of the fall, we're seeing that even this family is subjected to the consequences of sin, that, that no one escapes death, that it, it comes for all who are affected by sin and living in sin and living in a fallen Genesis 3 world. People are born, they're fathered, and they're named. People live, they have sons and daughters and live for years. And then people die. That's what we just read, and he died again and again. Death comes for all of us, and it's a sobering reality. It impacts each and every one of us in this room. See, just this year alone, I have what I count a, a privilege and an honor to, to sit with many of you and, and pray for many of you as right after you lost a loved one. And a few years back, I had the, the privilege of, of preaching my, my first funeral uh, when my stepdad died of a sudden heart attack. And I, and I stood there in that, in that church that I'd stood in so many times before, and I saw my mom and my, my three little brothers sitting on the front row, tears streaming down their faces, and, and it was because the results of the fall are present. And they, they come for all of us. This Wednesday, I'll have the privilege of, of preaching my grandmother's funeral in Missouri with her 11 children and many, many grandchildren and great-grandchildren there. And we'll celebrate the things that God did in her life. And we'll do so while grieving the loss. Because death is a reality. And it comes for all of us. And it, it doesn't matter that my, my stepdad was a father of three little boys. It still came for him. It doesn't matter that my grandmother relentlessly and passionately loved an incredibly large family, which if you've ever been around a large family, you know how difficult that is because the larger it gets, the more mess there is. Right? And it didn't matter that she was religious or that she had a pastor for a grandson. See, the effects of the fall are something we all experience. And he died, and he died, and he died. Cheery message, right? 
I don't point this out to to bring you down, but I, I want you to feel the weight of this because we experience this in our lives. We experience this monotonous cycle of life and death because we live in a Genesis 3 world. But here's where I want you to see the hope. Look at verses 21 through 24 with me, where we see the hope of walking with God. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And we read this phrase again in verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You see, the the repetitive cycle is broken here. Moses is telling the story of this family, and, and he shows us in Enoch's life that for those who hope and trust in God, death is not the ultimate end. See, see we wonder what, what was so special about Enoch. What's the deal that he didn't experience death? That all these other men and women experienced death, but, but Enoch says he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say, and he died, like it did with everyone else. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 11 this about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then we read this famous verse that many of us have read time and time again. And it comes right after Enoch's story in Hebrews 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, it wasn't that Enoch was better than everyone else. It wasn't only that Enoch believed and no one else did. Because Abel believed. Abel had faith. If you go up a few verses in Hebrews 11, you read about Abel's faith. And yet Abel was murdered. Abel experienced death. And these others in, in the lineage of Seth, they experienced death, though they were of the faithful line, the, those who trusted in God, who believed in the coming offspring, who believed God's promises. See, see, I don't think that it's Enoch is just this special guy, and so God decides to spare him. It's that Enoch, like so many others, has placed his hope and his trust in God, and he has believed the promise of the coming offspring. And so God, in his grace, chooses to show us something about walking with God through his life. He chooses to show us that for those who walk with God, death is not the end. For those who walk with God, there is life with God that is eternal. There is the presence of God. There is the fact that God will take us. We may experience physical death, but trusting in Christ, we have spiritual life. And and that death is not the end of the story. And so, so, you know, you know, want to know the reason why, as a pastor, I can still have hope 
even though I probably sit in more rooms with dead people and lost loved ones than most do. It's because of stories like Enoch's. It's because God has offered us the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation, the gift of deliverance, redemption, restoration, and life. And he's offered it to us freely in his son. That, that you and I, if we, if we choose to accept this gift, if we walk with God by faith, then we can have life. And so I, I, I don't even have hope because I know the hearts of anyone. I don't, even, I don't know the hearts of my own loved ones. I don't know for certain where they stand with God. But what I do know is the same gift of life that's offered to Seth and Enoch and to all of us was offered to them. And that a God who would offer salvation to those who don't deserve it and life to those who could never achieve it, that that God is good enough to trust with my loved ones. That that God is good enough for you to place your faith in today. That that God is good enough for us to hope and trust in and that this God is good enough to walk with because he gives life and salvation by grace through faith in his son, the offspring, Jesus Christ. Which is why Lamech has so much hope when his son Noah is born. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so it hints at the rest of the story. But I want you to notice just a couple things as we end our time together. That Lamech realizes that life is hard, that life is painful, that, that sometimes you, you work with everything that you've got and you struggle at your job and you struggle to provide financially for your family, that, that sometimes loved ones just keep getting sick and dying one after the other, and that grief is relentless, and that sometimes marriages and relationships, they fall apart as the result of strife and conflict in a broken, fallen world. See, Lamech, as he has his son, he realizes all of that. But he has hope that God is bringing about his promise, that God will bring relief. The name Noah in Hebrew means rest or relief. And, and, and Noah's line would bring about this relief. Lamech didn't get to experience it right then. It says the same thing about everyone else, and he died. Though he had hope, he died. And yet now, here's what I can tell you. He's looking back on that rest and relief that came through Jesus Christ, that came through, eventually, his son's line, that he hoped in what God would do, that he hoped in the promised offspring. 
See, Jesus was the son of Joseph. Then we read down in Luke chapter 3, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, of Mahalalel, of Canaan, of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. And this Jesus, this son, this promised offspring, here's what he says to us today. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so the question before us today is, which story is yours? Is, is your story Cain's story? Consistently just trying to, to take life by the horns and do it your own way? Or is your story like Lamech's and Enoch's and, and all those who have believed in the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, and hoped and come to him for relief and rest? Because he's offering it to you today. And if you'll walk with God by faith, in Jesus you'll find rest. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for this story today because it is not just a story. It is the true story of human history. It is the true story of redemption that you have been telling from the beginning. And God, most of all, we are grateful today that you have offered us a place in this story. And so God, I pray right now for those who have yet to become a part of this family. I pray that today you would give them faith that you would help them to trust in your son, Jesus Christ, that we would rejoice today in the promised offspring who has brought rest and relief. Amen.